Our sermon text is Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. That's the account of the the feeding of the 4,000 and what goes on uh, in the text after that. So, again, Mark Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. I'll, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word if you're able to do so. Give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Mark 8, verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand, or your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? In the sense of the reading of God's word, you may be seated. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's... Let's pray and ask God's blessing into his word, uh, of his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through it, that through your word uh, you reveal to us the way of salvation through faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for what it teaches us about him in these pages, even these verses we're looking at this morning. And we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So we ask today that you would... Give us grace by your spirit. Work in us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Give us understanding that we might trust in Christ and follow him more and more, even because we spent this time today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are uh, in chapter 8. We are just about halfway through, depending how you measure uh, the length of the book. We are about halfway through Mark's gospel. Uh, In his book, uh, Tim Keller, uh, another pastor in the PCA back east, you might have heard of him. He has a book that's about the the gospel of Mark. It doesn't deal with every verse, but it's it's kind of a a survey through the book. 
Uh, and in his book, uh, The King's Cross, he writes the following about, about Mark chapter 8. He says, chapter 8 of Mark's gospel is a pivotal chapter. It's the climax of the first act in which the disciples finally begin to see the true identity of the one they have been following. Uh, in it, Jesus says two things. Not a quote. Uh, I'm a king, but a king going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. Well, that's a pretty good summary of what's going on throughout the book, but especially as we get to chapter 8. Um, the, the whole book, you know, in a sense, the whole book is to show us who Jesus really is. Uh, that's, that's kind of the theme, the theme of the book. And so this, uh, in chapter 8, it's pivotal, not just because it's the halfway point, but it's pivotal in the sense that Jesus is really starting to bring out, and Mark in writing is, is starting to bring out exactly who Jesus is. He's kind of hitting us over the head with it in, in the verses that follow what we're looking at um, here. The, chapter 8 in Mark's Gospel in verse 29 is where you get Peter's confession of Christ. When Jesus says, you know, who do men say that I am? What did Peter say? The same Peter who's in the boat here asking about bread. Oh, he thinks we're mags. We didn't pack a lunch. You know, he's the one that says, you are the Christ. It's not, not to us, to our ears, that sounds pretty simple, right? Well, no kidding. It's, it's practically his last name, the way we say it, right? Jesus Christ. No, it's, it's to say you are the Christ is to say you are the Messiah. You're the one promised throughout the entire Old Testament, the one who was to save his people. And that's certainly the theme in the Gospel of, of Mark. And so it's not an accident that that confession kind of comes right in the middle of the book. Well, that's what this chapter, the part that we're looking at of chapter 8, is leading and pushing us towards. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the warm-up for that, that confession of faith on the part of, of uh, the Apostle Peter. So the, the, the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is, what, what he came to do, is at the heart of the Gospel of Mark. And in many ways, that's the point of miracles like this that we're seeing here in Mark chapter 8 and everything else we've seen so far um, in, in the book. The very first verse of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1, verse 1, this is what Mark says. It's, it's not even really a complete sentence, really. He says, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's easy to read right past that. It's easy to forget it. But that's really the theme of the whole book, and Mark's reminding us of that here in, in chapter 8. Um, no, you know, if you think about it, no, nothing that you read in the Gospel of Mark, or in, really in the Bible, but especially in the Gospel of Mark, nothing that, that he's going to tell us about Jesus, who he is, what he did, these miracles, nothing about that makes any sense if we don't grasp the significance of who Jesus is. If we think he's just some kind of a, a teacher or a prophet, even maybe a great prophet, it's still not going to make sense. If we realize he's the Lord, he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah, then we'll start getting an idea of what these things are to point us to. And we're, we're going to look at, as is our, our custom typically, uh, three things from our text, a three-point outline. Uh, it's not written on your bulletin, but if you want to keep track. The first thing we're going to see is in the first ten verses, it's bread from heaven. Bread from heaven given, rather, that he gives bread from heaven. The second thing we're going to see in verses 11 to 13 is a sign from heaven demanded by the Pharisees and scribes. And the third thing we're going to see is bread from heaven forgotten in verses 14 to 21. So the first thing here in, in verses 1 through 10 is bread from heaven given to the people, the miracle itself, uh, 
properly speaking, the feeding of the 4,000 as it's often referred to. Look at verses 1 through 3 where Mark kind of sets the stage for the whole thing. He says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way And some of them have come from far away. Notice that Mark says again in verse 1. I always think of uh, Ronald Reagan saying, you know, here we go, here you go, there you go again, you know, here we go again. Jesus is, is, is out in the middle of nowhere, but people are still following him no matter where he goes. A great crowd had gathered. Uh, most likely they were following Jesus to do what? Why were they following him? Was this the traveling miracle show? Were they just, you know, eating popcorn and watching Jesus heal people and cast out demons? And, you know, pro probably not. Mark, you know, Mark, as is his custom, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, he typically focuses on the action in the story. He doesn't really give us a lot of extended um, teaching of Jesus, you know, the actual words he said. He, he mainly focuses upon what Jesus is doing. But probably what these, this crowd of people, these thousands of people, what they're doing is they're following him and listening to him. He's teaching them. It's, it's what you see him doing all through the Gospels when people are following him is he's teaching them. Well, Mark doesn't focus our attention in the text anyway on the content of what that teaching may have, have been. But he does talk about the crowd following him and what their circumstances were. And how many people does Mark tell us were there? Four, about 4,000. About 4,000 people. That, that should ring a bell. That should kind of sound familiar to something we just looked at a couple chapters ago. So here, once again, we have a very large crowd. You know, thousands of people. Uh, in this particular instance, though, they are probably mostly Gentiles. In chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, we know from, from Mark's parallel account that there were about 5,000 people, 5,000 men, besides women and children. So we don't really know exactly how many. It was probably maybe three times that. It could have been quite a crowd. Well, here we have 4,000. He makes no mention of, of women or children, how many. He doesn't differentiate or distinguish between them. But what do you have here? I mean, it's, it's, an, odd, it's an odd thing, if you picture it, what's happening. You have a crowd of people. They're, they're mostly, probably, again, not even Jews, You know, not the people you would expect to be following the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, out in the middle of nowhere, and they're listening to him teach. For three days, they're following him and listening to him teach. They've listened to him teach for so long that they ran out of food. You know, they probably didn't forget to pack some things, some, some food. But after day three, they're all, they're all out. And they're not exactly near, nearest the, uh, the next 7-Eleven. There's nowhere to get food And so rather than sending them all home, which is what you and I, that's what I would do. I'd say, hey, we're, there's nothing left here, folks. You know, go ahead and go home. Uh, Jesus says he has compassion on them. What are they doing? These, these unexpected people, these gen, this Gentile crowd, uh, they're living out the words of Deuteronomy 8.3. They're living not by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, so very, very often we, we think of this text and think it seems like a do-over. You know, it seems like, didn't he just do this two chapters ago? wonder why, why does Mark include it? Jesus certainly did many miracles, John even says in the end of his gospel. He did many miracles that John, for instance, didn't include in the, in the gospel of John. Well, certainly Jesus did many things 
in the shortest gospel, the gospel of Mark, that aren't, aren't included, um, well, his disciples ask him kind of a strange question. If, you're, if you've never read the gospel of Mark, if you haven't read chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 as it's called, and you've, the first time you've ever opened the book of Mark is right here in chapter 8, you might think, that's a pretty good question. What, what, what do they say? They say, uh, how can one feed these people uh, with bread here in this desolate place? Verse 4. Not an unreasonable question if it's in a vacuum. But when it comes after Mark 6, it might strike you as just a little bit odd. You know, if anything, you know, we don't know the exact numbers, but this crowd is pretty big. We'd be in a panic if we had to feed 4,000 people. But it might be a third or even less of the size of the crowd he just fed two chapters ago. We don't know how long, how much time had, had lapsed between chapter 6 and chapter 8, but it's kind of hard to imagine that it, they forgot all about it. That suddenly they, you know, all the circumstances are lining up to the same. You'd think they'd be like, you know, I've seen this before. I, this rings a bell. I'm not sure what. No, they, they knew. what. They didn't forget what had happened. Although Jesus does ask them that they've forgotten, doesn't he? Later on in our, in our text. Um, so in, in light of that feeding of the 5,000, which was probably not that long ago, the, their question might seem a little odd. The one thing you have to think about that might help explain it they didn't just presume that Jesus would do another miracle, did they? I know it's easy for us in our day, in our circumstance, to read the gospel, especially the gospel of Mark, where he's focusing on action and all these different miracles that Jesus is doing. Uh, he's, I mean, he's, at one point he stops a storm in a boat, and the disciples say, what manner of man is this? The old King James puts it that the, even the wind and the waves obey him. That's not normal. The guy in this boat with us is not normal. This, this doesn't usually happen. Uh, the, most, the, you know, the greatest teachers we've ever had don't usually command the elements and have them listen, like a lapdog. Well, th- there's a few things that we have to keep in mind. Uh, first, if you've been with us, and some of you haven't, in the recent, recent weeks in our study in Mark, we've seen a, a, a recurring theme of Jesus trying to keep things quiet, Right? In the last passage in chapter 7, what does he do? There's a, there's a man who's, who's deaf, he can't hear, and he's either dumb or has a very severe speech impediment. And you know, a crowd, his friends bring him to Jesus, kind of a crowd, like it always seems to happen, gathers. And what does Jesus do? Mark says, he took him aside, away from the crowd, or apart from the crowd, and then healed him. People still found out about it, but he's trying to keep things quiet. Versus earlier than that, it says he couldn't be hidden. It implies... He's trying to be hidden. He, he's, getting, he's trying to stay away and not attract attention to himself. And why would he be trying to not attract attention to himself, at least not yet? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out when you look at verses 11 to 13, you know, the old, here we go again, well, here the Pharisees come again. And they're, they're objecting to what he's doing. They're causing problems. They're even arguing with the Lord. If you can imagine the foolishness of doing something like that, that's what they did. They argued uh, and disputed with Christ. So one reason for not doing a miracle might have been, and the disciples might have been thinking, hey, he's been wanting to keep it quiet. Maybe we shouldn't expect him to do anything right about now. Maybe he wants to keep things quiet now, too. The second reason that might be is, and this might sound strange to, to some of you, but you know, think, think about it again. Where are they? Sometimes it's hard to keep track. You need, you need to keep your map open in the back of your Bible and have a, you know, a scorecard to see where he is. But they're in a largely Gentile area right now. It's not like they're back in Jerusalem or 10 miles outside 
the city. And if you remember in the previous passage back in Mark 7, when Jesus you know, cast the demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who had been possessed and was being uh, troubled by a demon, you know, she came to the house he was staying at, even though he was trying to be hidden. And she told him about, uh, she begged him, you know, about her daughter. And what did he tell her? He said in verse 27 of Mark 7, he said, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread, there's bread again, and throw it to the dogs. Now, we saw then that to our ears, that sounds very offensive. It, you know, you, you could even, uh, not rightly so, but you could even almost think of it in terms of racism, like, oh, my gosh, you know, Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild is, is saying, hey, I'm here for the Jews. I'm not here for the Gentiles. You know, why don't, why don't you go away? But, of course, he does. He does answer her prayers. He does answer her request. He heals her daughter. But what's his point? He came first and foremost, not only, but first and foremost for the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. The Messiah is the anointed one of the Jews. He's the son of, of David. So the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. Even Paul in Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is, is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It's for both, but in, in a sense there's a priority here. And Jesus is establishing that priority. So his disciples might have been learning that. They might have been saying, okay, I think I know what's going on. Maybe we shouldn't ask. Maybe we shouldn't presume or suppose he's just automatically going to do a miracle anytime a need comes up. A third reason is uh, possible is that the disciples could be somewhat forgetful. Not forgetful in the, oh, I forgot he did feed 5,000 people. Not, not that kind of forgetful, but just not mindful of what he had been doing even while he, they were with him. You know, it, think about him feeding 5,000 people plus uh, the women and children that were there in the previous miracle in Mark chapter 6. Um, what had that taught them about the true identity of Jesus and why he had come in the first place, that he was the Son of God? Maybe they just kind of lost sight of the meaning, the significance of the miracle, even if they didn't forget the miracle itself. In verse 18 of our text, what does he say? He says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, that, in that case, he's talking about the feeding of the 4,000. Know, they just fed 4,000 people uh, by Jesus' miracle. And then they're in the boat and they're arguing about bread. Oh, Jesus is upset because we forgot to pack a lunch. You know, Jesus is saying, hey, I just took care of a pretty big lunch not too, too long ago. Um, you know, what, what part of that don't you understand? I can, I can handle this. Kind of a thing. Well, the disciples, their slowness of heart to believe or understand, that's another one of those recurring themes that we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. And I hope that you, like I do, take some, some comfort from that. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of wag your finger at them and go, oh, those crazy disciples. And it's like, no, look in the mirror. How many of us have to relearn the same lessons over and over and over again? You know, God provides for you however long you've been on this earth. God has been faithful to provide, and yet what happens the next time a need comes up? What are we going to do? You know, I do that all the time, too often than I should, especially for a pastor who's supposed to know better, right? Well, we all should know better. If you're, if you're a believer in Christ for any length of time, when has God ever failed you? When has God failed to provide for your needs? Not always your wants, but your needs. Has he ever failed? We're all still sitting here, aren't we? Uh, well, so we, we have to relearn and remember and be reminded of the same, uh, same lessons very often, just like they did. Well, in any case, 
Jesus has compassion upon that crowd, that weary crowd, that hungry crowd that have been following him for three days. And in verses 5 to 9, Mark writes this. He says, and he asked them, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? <laughs> it's like, it's kind of a funny question if you think about it. For, you know, this, think of 4,000 people. You know, think about the last time you were in a place, maybe, I don't know how many people fit in Ramona High's football stadium or football you know, uh, field, but uh, 4,000 4,000 people, and he says, how many, what do you got? How many loaves do you have? What do you, what do you got in your pockets? Everybody empty out your pockets, and we'll, we'll figure this out. And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to, the, to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that uh, these should also be set before them, and then what does it say? Just like in chapter 6. And they ate and were what? Satisfied. They were full. It's the same word he used when he talked to that Syrophoenician woman back in chapter 7. Let the children not just be fed, let them be filled, let them be satisfied. And then she says, well, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the, the kids you know, at, at the table. They were satisfied. They were full. They weren't still hungry. They didn't have just enough to keep them going. They had as much as they wanted. And it says they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and then he sent them away. Now, if you're familiar with the feeding of the 5,000, which many of you, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of you, that you are, you might notice, uh, I hope you've noticed, there's a remarkable similarity between the two events. You could practically superimpose them or hold them if you, you know, were able to fold your pages of your Bible in such a way to have them right next to each other. Um, other than the numbers, really everything's the same. It's, all, it's, it's not word for word, but it feels like it's almost word for word. What happens? It feels very much like a do-over. The only thing, again, that's different that I can find in the text are the actual numbers. You've got uh, in the first one in Mark 6, Verse 38, you have five loaves and two small fish, a boy's lunch, basically. Here, how many loaves do we have? Seven. Seven loaves. And it says a few small fish. Apparently, that was a pretty common uh, kind of thing to carry along as a lunch in those days. Instead of 5,000 men plus women and children, then Matthew 14, 21 tells us here we have 4,000 people. Um, in fact, in, in Matthew and Mark, in, in that case, it specifically mentions men. Well, in this case, there's no, it's just a number. It, Mark literally says there were about 4,000. doesn't say men, women, children, anything. The word people is kind of supplied by the translators because it's, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. It sounds funny in English. So he's really saying there's, there's 4,000. There's 4, um, how many baskets were left over? Remember the first time there were 12, one for each apostle to be staring at in disbelief. In this case, there's seven. We don't know what the, what the reason is for the, the different number. There's actually a different word for baskets. Some commentators believe this basket, these baskets were much bigger. So either way, the leftovers were much more than they started with. It's, it's another way of proving this wasn't, as the liberal scholars like to so often say, a quote-unquote miracle of sharing. You know, when everybody was really hiding their lunches, and then when Jesus, you know, took this one thing and broke, everybody felt bad and felt guilty and broke out their lunch. You know, you don't, you don't feed 4,000 people, have them full, 
and then have seven baskets, huge baskets left over of, of the food. That's, you know, the, 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 way, the way that the Lord orchestrated this thing in both cases, uh, it, it really rules all of that out. There's no real legitimate way of, of trying to explain it away. Well, there's so much similarity between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 uh, that some uh, liberal skeptics, I know that's redundant, uh, they actually claim that these two accounts are of the same event. There's so much similarity that what they, you know, what they kind of say is, well, the right, you know, Mark, you know, Mark got confused. Really, they would say Mark didn't write it, uh, but they would say that there's so much uh, similarity that what, it, what we really have in front of us is a duplicate. Somehow, it's a duplication of the same event. And whoever wrote this, they would probably say that it was written at a much later date than the first century. Uh, many of them, they would say that Mark didn't write it, and that would, and because Mark didn't write it, it must have been somebody being confused at the time. You know, I can't help but think that such uh, scholars have a lot more in common with the Pharisees later in this chapter than they do uh, with the disciples who they would claim to be a part of. Um, well, think about this. Is that claim in the slightest bit believable? What would you have to believe to hold that position besides the fact that you would have to believe it's not really scripture, that Mark didn't write it, which well, how would you justify it? I don't. I don't know, but it, it kind of seems silly. On the, even on the surface, such an argument seems silly to me. You know, it's not like Mark was uh, doing what we do. In our day, we have laptops and computers and copy and paste. You know, Mark wasn't copying and pasting. And oops, oh, I must have made a. I slipped with my finger on the mouse and put the same event. Let me change some of the some of the numbers. You'd have to believe that Mark is a very careless writer. Is there anything in the Gospel of Mark to this point that gives you the impression that Mark is a careless writer? Is there anything in the text that would give you the impression that the Apostle Peter was getting really mixed up in his middle age? Remember, Mark, Mark is giving Peter's, really Peter's account, the Apostle Peter's account of what happened. Peter was the eyewitness. It was his eyewitness testimony that Mark is recording for us here in the Gospel of Mark. You'd have to believe Peter to be quite confused. Oh, wait, that only happened once. You know, I, for, I forgot, my bad, uh, that, that kind of a, of a thing. Not only that, but in verses 18 to 19 of our text, what does Jesus himself refer back to? The feeding of the 5,000. Don't you remember? And how many baskets were picked up? And they said 12. There's no confusion. That's half, in other words, to, to whoever would say this, they would say, well, how could you possibly believe that the disciples would forget or be confused. Well, they didn't forget. They, when Jesus quizzes them, what do they do? They knew the details. They forgot the significance of it. They knew it was 12 baskets left over. They knew it was seven this time, baskets left over, but they, they didn't learn the lesson. Just like we do very often, we need to relearn the same lessons over and over again. The scripture repeats a lot of things because we're all, I speak for myself, slow to learn just like these disciples were in their day. Well, what's the point of the miracle? What, what reason, for what reason did Jesus do this miracle feeding of, of the 5,000? Easy to miss it. What's the first reason? It's the first reason Jesus gives himself in verse 2. He says, I have what? I have compassion on the crowd. It's easy to miss that, but we shouldn't. Why did Jesus feed 5,000 you know, 5, and then 4,000 hungry followers in the middle of nowhere? Because he had compassion upon them. That should be comforting for us. The compassion of our Savior should be comforting for us as his people. 
And we should also seek to emulate that same compassion as much as it depends upon us to do so. There's another reason. His miracles were signs. Now, Mark doesn't use the word sign you know, right there in the first ten verses. But his miracles were for signs. They were signs, but they weren't ever for show. You know, it, it, sometimes we get the impression that you know, Jesus just did so many miracles all the time that what, when, would he ne- when would he not do one? He would always just do them all the time. Everywhere he went, he just did miracles left, left and right. But they weren't for show. They were to point to who he was and is. They were to point to his identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God. But they were never done just to do them. They were never done just for show or for no reason. They were done to reveal his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. And they were expressions of his compassion for the lost and the hurting, both for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. A third thing that that comes to mind, remember, these are mostly Gentiles. We don't know the exact makeup of the crowd. The first one shouldn't shock us. 5,000 Jews in the middle of the wilderness, Jesus feeding, it's kind of a recapitulation of Moses and the children of Israel in the the wilderness. The the manna, the, the water from the rock. You know, to see the Messiah doing that, the Messiah is the one that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18.15, that God was going to raise up from among them a prophet like him that they had to listen to. So when that happens, if you understand your Old Testament and how the new ties into it and fulfills it, you might go, well, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus is the new Moses. It's exactly what he was. He was more than that. But he, he is the prophet prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. But to see him do it with a crowd of Gentiles is a whole other ball of wax. It would have been very unexpected. And yet, look, look what Jesus does. They're following him. He's teaching them, too. He was given as a light to the Gentiles as well. The gospel is to go to all the nations. His compassion extends to all the nations. That's one of the lessons of this, this, this feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark chapter 8. Well, the second thing we see in our text, a very short part of the text, verses 11 to 13, is a sign from heaven demanded the bread from heaven was given the sign from heaven was not verses 11 to 13 we see the Pharisees coming and and demanding a sign it says there the Pharisees came and began to argue with him never a good idea seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation seek a sign Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. So we don't know how long it was between the miracle and the Pharisees showing up. It seems like they had radar for him. They showed up pretty quickly every time he went somewhere. Um, But he just did a miracle. He just did a sign. And what do they do? They show up asking for another one. Do Do us a trick, Jesus. You know, let's really prove it. Maybe they missed that one. They wanted to see something for them themselves. You know, everything in these short three verses here, and even what Jesus says afterward to the disciples when they were in the boat, it it paints a picture of stiff-necked opposition to Christ. There's some irony here. I mean, over the words for seeking appear number a number of times in, in verses 11 to 13. These are seekers. You know, we're all, the church today, we're supposed to be seeker-sensitive and seeker-driven. And you almost want to say, well, wow, Jesus is being very seeker-sensitive here. They're seeking, and he's driving them away. He's telling them to get lost. 
so they, they argue with him. They demand a sign from him, from heaven, no less, from him. Why do they ask for a sign? Did they want to believe? Is that why they were asking? Are these seekers? Are these people seeking Jesus and he's saying, get lost? You know, I've got mercy for these guys, but not for you. Is that what's happening? Are they, are they trying to find something to help them believe? What does it say in verse 11? They were seeking a sign from heaven to do what? To test him. To test him. He just gave a sign. And they're asking for, for another one. Now, why were they asking for a sign in the first place? They were asking for a sign because they did not believe. It's a totally different thing. They weren't asking because they wanted to believe. They were asking because they didn't believe. They had refused to believe. Their request for a sign was firmly rooted in unbelief. Unbelief. If you think about it, their request for a sign wasn't much different than what Satan said to Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness in Mark 4, or excuse me, Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1 and Luke 4. There, what, what, did, what did Satan say to Jesus more than once? It was like his way of, of bringing up the temptation. He says, if you are the son of God, do this. He said it more than once. That's not belief. That's not faith. It's, hey, prove it. If you're the son of God, chuck yourself from the top of the temple because the psalmist says an angel will swoop you up so you don't dash your foot against a stone. And what did Jesus say? Something these, these Pharisees should have, should have been told also. You shall not test the Lord thy God. Don't put the Lord thy God to the test. So they, they're echoing the words of Satan himself. Prove it. If you're the son of God, do this. Well, Jesus is no one's show pony. He doesn't do things. He doesn't do tricks. He doesn't perform on demand like a trained, like a trained dog. The Pharisees, as they do all through the Gospels, what do they do? They show their spiritual family resemblance. You know, at one point, Jesus says to them, you're of your father, the devil. Think about that. They're the religious leaders of the day. It'd be like going to a group of pastors uh, I know, depends what you think of the pastors, but and saying you're of your father the devil, you're not a child of God, you're the exact opposite. These, if anybody was supposed to be right with God, it should have been them. And Jesus is saying, no, you're just like your your true father, who isn't God, it's Satan himself. The fact that they wanted him dead shows that family resemblance. They were openly hostile to Christ, just like Satan, their father, was. Notice what does Jesus refer to them as there in verse twelve easy to kind of skip right over it. This generation, this generation, he says, will not get a sign. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. What is that kind of an allusion to? You think about the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings. There was a generation that perished in the wilderness. It didn't get to go to the promised land. Why? They didn't enter in because of their unbelief. He's comparing them to the stiff-necked people that God rescued from Egypt. He's saying, this is just like that. They had signs galore and they still didn't believe. And here these people are and they're still asking for signs and they're not going to get one. If you read in Matthew's gospel, he actually uh, describes, as we're going to see, the sign that they, that they, would, that they would give. What does, he, what does he say? Uh, they were 
they were going to receive a sign. There, there is one that they were going, going to receive, um, but it wasn't going to be the one they were asking for. When Jesus says, it's kind of an awkward phrase, when he says in verse 12, uh, uh, truly I say to you, no sign will be given. It's, uh, it's kind of a, what we call a maledictory oath. In other words, he's saying something like, uh, we, we would put it this way. He's not just saying no. He's not just saying you're not going to have a sign. He's practically saying over my dead body, are you going to get a sign? It's a, it's a very forceful way of putting it. As, as, as if, if, if a sign is going to be given to you, uh, it's going to be over my dead body. I will not allow you to get a, a sign. Now, they, they were going to receive some kind of a sign. Matthew's account adds one detail to this conversation with the, the Pharisees. Matthew 16.4, Jesus says this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. Now that's, why does he say this? What's the sign of Jonah? It's kind of a veiled reference to his own death and burial and resurrection. Uh, he used that uh, sign of Jonah phrase more than once. Back in Matthew 12:40, Jesus explains what he means by that phrase. He says, For as, as just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah in the belly of the whale or the great fish was a picture, uh, was a picture for those with eyes to see it, of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. You know, even in that, even in that, that account in Jonah, you know, what does Jonah say? Salvation is of the Lord. Well, that's, that's all that pointed forward to Christ and his cross and burial and resurrection. Now think, think about this. Think about how frightening a picture of unbelief the Pharisees were. If anyone should have been right with the Lord, if anybody should have understood and believed on the, on the entire earth, they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands. And they not only failed to believe, they were plotting his death. They rejected their own Messiah, the, own, the only Savior of, of sinners. What a picture of hardness of heart for us to see in these pages. They had every outward appearance of knowing God and of serving God, all the while rejecting him and even plotting his death. They've been plotting his death in Mark since Mark chapter 3, verse 6. It's been chapters now. They've been plotting his death with the Herodians. No wonder Jesus tells his disciples, what? In the boat, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's still thinking of this conversation with the Pharisees when he brings that up in the boat. And that brings us to our last point, bread from heaven forgotten, verses 14 to 21. In verses 14 to 16, Mark writes this, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Once again, they kind of missed the point of what he was saying and why he had brought it up. Um, Think about that. After all they had just seen, pretty recently, right? Feeding of 4,000 people, the second time Jesus did some miraculous feeding, of, of a large crowd of, of people, and somehow they thought he was upset because they forgot to bring enough bread. Like Jesus could do miracles on land, but not maybe not in the boat. Maybe the boat was off limits or something. Um, 
Well, these verses again show us the dullness of understanding of even the disciples, the future apostles themselves. Now think about this. If you're Peter, this is an argument for the authenticity of the Gospel of Mark. If you're the Apostle Peter and you're the one whose account this is, you're the one who's the eyewitness giving the, the, the uh, details of the account and the story, um, you're probably not going to be in a hurry to over and over and over again emphasize your own dullness and slowness of heart to understand and believe. And yet that's exactly what we see in these pages. Peter's, because Peter's not writing, or he's not doing the writing, Peter's account through Mark is not to glorify Peter. It's the exact opposite. It's to glorify Christ himself, the Savior of sinners. He makes no effort to, to hide or downplay his own ignorance or the ignorance of his own fellow disciples. You know, they, what the, again, what do they do? They, they seem to have forgotten or missed the significance of the sign, the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 in the first place. Even though they knew, they knew the details, they missed the significance of it. When Jesus asks the question, they give the answers. Twelve baskets, seven baskets, and all, and all of that. They had forgotten more than just bringing enough bread. They forgot they had the bread of life in the boat with them. They, they, they had no need of anything as long as he was in the boat with them, or they were in the boat with him. Now, Mark, Mark in our text, in, the Mark, in, in Mark chapter 8, he doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on the details of what Jesus meant when he spoke of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 16:12 is a little bit more specific. He says that he was uh, referring to, quote, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So when he talked about the, the leaven of the Pharisees here in Mark chapter 8, he's referring primarily to their teaching, the effects of their, of their teaching, their false teaching and false teaching in any age is a lot like leaven. Now, what is leaven? It's, uh, it's something that you put into, uh, into dough, and it makes the dough. It's kind, of, it's kind of like yeast. It's not the same exact thing, but it's like yeast. It makes the dough rise. You put a little bit of leaven in the dough, and what happens? If you put a little tiny bit of leaven in a, in a lump of dough, does a little part of the dough rise, or does the whole dough rise? The whole lump rises. It, it affects everything. So Jesus is basically saying, be on the very careful lookout. Be on the watch out for false teaching. Their kind, in particular, of, of false teaching. And we should be taking that same lesson for ourselves today. Um, very often we, we have a tendency, I think, because we want to be nice. Uh, everybody wants to be nice. We should all be nice, right? Um, but we're, sometimes we're too nice for our own good. And we, we kind of accept false teaching a little bit here and a little bit there, thinking, oh, what's the, you know, what could it possibly hurt? We, let's agree to disagree and all these things. And next thing, you know, that's how it starts. It really is how it starts. Next thing you know, it infects the whole lump. He also is probably talking about legalism and hypocrisy, isn't he? All those things, they, they work their way in subtly, slowly, but after a while, it works its way through the whole, through the whole batch. What about the leaven of Herod? That's one of the, it's easy to read that verse and kind of skip the Herod part. Was Herod teaching? Was Herod a theologian? Was he going around from place to place and teaching? No, not that we, not that we know of. Herod was one that persecuted the church. Um, seems like that's, if your name was Herod in the Bible, you were doing bad things to the church. Right? There were multiple, multiple of them, and they were all bad, bad actors, to be sure. 
Um, well, what, what was the, the leaven of Herod? What kinds of things did might... Well, Herod was, was the... Not really, but he was sort of the, the uh, wannabe king of the Jews. It's one of the reasons he was so anti-Jesus, because he was threatened by him. He's not only persecuting the church, but what does we see back in, in Mark 3, verse 6? It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, the followers of Herod, those who were loyal to Herod, against him, against Jesus, how to destroy him. You see this strange, these strange bedfellows coming up again and again in the, in the Gospel of Mark. It wasn't just religious uh, leaders that were against Christ. It was also the political leaders of his day. You know, even in our day, it's funny, not funny, haha, but it's funny how unbelieving religion and unbelieving politics always seem to go together. They have the same Christ-hating mindset very often. They are both very often in opposition to the teachings of Christ, the truth of Christ. It's not by accident. It's always been that way, and we'll always see that in some regard in this life. It's not just something that happened in the first century. We still see it in our own day. Well, how often are you and I like the disciples again? How often are you and I slow to understand? That's one of the lessons of this chapter. How many of us are slow to trust in God's continuing provision? How many of us worry that we won't have enough bread even though we have the bread of life with us always, same as the disciples did. We serve the very same Jesus who showed compassion on those great crowds. We serve and follow the same Jesus. We believe in the same Jesus who fed thousands of people with next to nothing by his own power. And isn't it comforting for you and I to know that he still has compassion on the lost? He still has compassion on crowds, just like he did here in our text. He still has the same great patience with his people. He doesn't mind teaching us over and over again the same lessons. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't cast you aside the third or fourth time. You have to relearn the same lesson. He bears with you and I in our weaknesses. He bears with you and I in our slowness to understand and remember the lessons we've already learned from his word and from life experience with him. May the Lord by his spirit Help us that you and I might remember always that Jesus, the living and reigning Jesus right now, is the bread of life, that he is, as Keller said earlier on, he is the king. He is our Lord, our king, who laid down his life for our salvation, and he lives and rules evermore at the right hand of God the Father, even now to gather and defend his church, which is us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things in your word. We thank you for the testimony of the eyewitnesses to these miracles that Jesus did that show that he's not just some prophet, one among many. He's not just a great teacher, not even just a good moral teacher, but that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited one prophesied and promised all throughout your Old Testament, that he is the very Son of God himself who came and, and came not to be a glorious king in his first coming, but came to lay down his life for his people, to save us from our sins, and rose again the third day, and is now seated at your right hand. And he will come again one day with glory to judge the living and the dead, and for the salvation of his people. We thank you for these things. We thank you for your great compassion, the compassion of your son, for the lost and the suffering. We thank you for your great patience, Lord, with your people, when we are slow to learn and understand and have to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. 
We thank you that you finish what you start, that he who began a good work in us, in Christ, will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ. We thank you for all these things, and we ask that you would give us give us understanding. Help us to trust you when, when things aren't going the way we would, would like them to go. Help us to trust in your goodness, your provision, your providence, and care over us throughout all of our days. Thank you for sending Christ to be the bread of life. Thank you for opening our eyes and giving us the bread of life through faith in him. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.